0: China what they even <laughs> what is this chinese rap is <laughs> it sounds like they're just saying
1: qing chang song my chance to go watch met in china we play ping pong ball met in china hello and welcome to china econ talk i'm your host Jordan schneider the U.S.-China equilibrium of the past 20 years is gone, declares Gordon Orr in his recent piece on what to expect in China in 2019. So what will replace it? And what impact will the increasingly activist Chinese government have on the broader economy and the private sector? Gordon Orr is currently a director emeritus at McKinsey, having previously helped open the firm's Beijing office and led its greater China practice. He's currently a board member of Lenovo and Meituan Diemping. Gordon, thanks for coming on China Econ Talk. Delighted to be here, Jordan. So before we drill down into the economic consequences of the shifting relationship between China and the U.S., I'm curious, you know, to what extent do you think the Trump administration is justified in taking this hard line and shaking up the status quo between the two nations?
0: If you're talking
1: specifically about tariffs and the
0: uh, justification for that, I think there's a clear spectrum of responses across different industries. If you're in the steel industry in the U.S., and you've looked at you know the consequences of marginally-priced steel exports from China coming into the U.S. in a highly asset-intensive industry, they've been very material, and they've been going on for a long time, and there's a good case to be made there. In many other sectors where it's private Chinese entrepreneurs or, indeed, multinationals that are exporting from China, I think the argument in favor of tariffs as as a lever is pretty
1: weak it seems like more and more ceos are feeling comfortable talking about this topic but the ceo of rockstar games the or, or take two interactive who owns rockstar games who published you know red dead redemption and grand theft auto he's gone on record on a recent uh, earnings call saying you know if we really want to fight a trade war let's focus on the video game industry because we're losing half of our revenue to chinese partners we have to publish with uh in china domestically
0: then the numbers for the uh, the global video game industry in 2018 come out the other day, and the Chinese industry is two and a half times the size of the U.S. industry. Yeah, 40
1: billion dollars. We just, our, our past episode actually was just okay. Right. So, well, refer to the past episode.
0: <laughs> Sorry, listeners, hadn't got around to listening to the past the previous episode just yet. But I think businesses are more concerned about making sure they've got plans, contingency plans in place, should higher levels of tariffs get put in place. At this point. Most companies, I think, particularly in the electronics industry, uh, have adjusted what they need to do to deal with the, the 10% tariffs on, on the components and, and, and the like. If things go to 25%, then you will really see these contingency plans being rolled out, and companies will be forced. I think the best way to describe it is to reconfigure where they manufacture. Yes, it will be in part about putting new factories in outside of China. But that takes a long time sure. have to be able to source the manufacturing equipment and the like. But if you've already got a footprint that has a factory in Turkey, a factory in Poland, a factory yeah, maybe in Vietnam or even India, you say, how can I move things around in a way that will increase costs slightly? This is not a zero cost thing to do, but it would be better off than keeping the current footprint in place
1: sure hiring a handful of new workers or, or setting up another side shack to produce more of whatever you're producing somewhere is is a much yeah. less capital intensive decision than necessarily uh, setting up setting up shop somewhere entirely new
0: and potentially it's a less permanent decision should things you know swing back the other way on tariffs at some point point. plus I think for any company that's been manufacturing at scale in China for more than a decade you're aware that there's an enormous sensitivity to laying off workers at at any point in time. Uh, It has to be handled very, very carefully in order to avoid falling out with local governments, um, at least.
1: Sure. So let's continue on this tariff topic. So you write that close to three quarters of Chinese exports to the US are intermediary goods, not direct to consumer goods. So consumers will feel the price increases largely to the extent that US producers choose to pass on their higher costs. So could you talk a little bit about the firm level dynamics of who's going to take the hit for these changes?
0: Complicated economic forces are at play here, depending sure. on, you know, who has the leverage in the supply chain. And, and of course, in 2018, the exporters had some level of benefit from the depreciation of of the renminbi uh, to to bail them out on on a proportion of the tariffs, but you know most of these most of these categories where we're talking about ch- Chinese exporters of intermediary goods, you're probably talking about net profit margins of high high single digits at most. There's a whole whole chunk that are going to be low single digits of the real commodity toys. The,
1: the Universe, sure. e-
0: exactly, exactly. That whole ecosystem there, their ability to just suck up the tar- the tar- is is zero. Mm-hmm. Um, and although some have tried, but in the context of diminished liquidity in China in 2018, that was really hard yeah. because you know the banks weren't there to bail you out if you were running into a cash flow problem. So the um, the pressure on the bulk of this is being imposed on the. The recipients in the US. Sure. But because it's an intermediary good, there is more potential for that to be, be absorbed into their margin on the domestic manufacturing in the US. And that's more of what you've seen in the short term. You have not seen that much of the tariff increase really being passed through to, to the U.S. consumer.
1: So it's just it's just more of a cascade where where lots of different players can eat up a percent or two, and then um, the consumer ends up seeing it a little less obviously than they would yeah. otherwise. With,
0: yeah, the Chinese government bailing people out with the exchange rate on a percent or two as well.
1: So your general sense is that the uh, the the short-term GDP impact in China is relatively modest, around maybe half a percent or so, and that this, if it ends up cascading into to a greater lo- job losses and a decline in consumer confidence will have a much larger impact. I'm curious what your general take is on consumer confidence now. And just given my general sense that the US-China relationship, even if it doesn't have as much of a direct impact, has a pretty large psychological impact on a lot of these decision makers when they're thinking about hiring and or making purchases. Yeah, it, the
0: consumer confidence has been on a downward slope since about the middle of last year. But it's been a more gentle decline than I really originally expected it to be. Mm. And I think some of that's been around the fact that the job losses that have taken place have been pretty diffuse to this point in time. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the, the quoted number is 13 million new urban jobs were created last year. They may not have been as good a jobs. I mean, they may have largely been people, you know, working on delivery bikes and the, and the likes so sort of marginal income but um, they were there the the income tax cuts I think have had a positive impact sure. uh, are, on, on people's minds. you know and net you know salaries and incomes did rise in 2018 okay not as fast as they had been in the past but most of us would be happy with a six seven percent pay rise you know, just most rel- of the Western world generally. yeah exactly just relative to expectations of what you've had in, in China in the recent past most people who own property show, you know, property held its value or went up slightly yeah. uh, over the course of the year. And that's the biggest store of wealth for your average Chinese uh, consumer. So, um, you know, 2018 wasn't, you know, was an OK year for your, for your average middle class consumer. Yes, there's all this noise and in, in the context that you're hearing uh, around where things could go. And I think, you know, the Chinese New Year period that's just in front of us now is absolutely critical of people will go away, you know, factories, businesses will shut down for this period. To what extent will all of them open up again? Sure. Will they open up with the same number of workers? I think we'll have, we'll we'll know with much greater certainty where we are on this by, you know, Probably late February, early
1: March. Sure. You know, one of the big takeaways of the Trump era for me actually were this this incredible graph that I can link to of the dramatic shifts in consumer confidence of Democrats and Republicans as soon as Trump was elected. You know, I used to believe like, okay, like GDP growth is this number, inflation is this number, unemployment is that number. So then consumer confidence, you know, you put that in and you you run that regression and then you basically understand. Yeah. And Democrat confidence went from like seventy five percent to twenty five percent, and Republican consumer confidence did the exact opposite flip. Yeah. So, you know, even though I I totally uh, you know agree with the, the the stats you're citing that okay, property values re- went this much, like actually not that many people are getting fired right now, but bad noise coming into China is not a common thing, right? So when it does leak in, I mean you can't you can't hide the trade war story, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it can seem to multiply in a way that yeah. that, that may outstrip the you know the the percent of GDP yeah. that well, lovely I think, researchers came up with.
0: No, exactly. I mean, if you if you shift from listening to what people say to observing what people are doing, what the government actions are taking place right now, you know, my sense is if you add up you know the announced actions and the implemented actions, you know, the degree of concern that there must be. At the top must be pretty high because we get we're getting a lot of actions that are pushing us towards a pretty significant stimulus taking place in sure. the economy. Whether it's the the bank lending being being pushed through, um, whether it's the income tax subsidies, whether it's a VAT subsidy uh, reduction, whether it's the you know the the relaxation on. Uh, bad debt criteria in the banking systems. It's it's very clear that people are pulling levers and pulling them pretty hard and fast right now. So I'd say interpreting the actions, there's a sense that yes, in reality, consumer confidence is probably a good bit lower sure. than is being reported.
1: So, so let's now turn to the uh, the your your part about the Chinese government growing increasingly activist in its economic policies. Sure. So you write that across all sectors, a more interventionist government is feeling confident in its ability to shape and control uh, more and more specific details of a business, leading it to intervene through policy regulation and arbitrary one-off decisions. So let's stay at the at the more macro level before diving down into the, um, the mm-hmm. sector-specific yeah. stuff. Yeah. The way you just framed it right now it didn't necessarily seem like this was coming from a place of confidence as much as a place of anxiety no
0: on the the economy overall sure yeah yeah i think these i mean yes i'd agree with that assertion. that the um the actions that the government's taking right now on the overall economy are ones that are you know at 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 a minimum creating an insurance policy against things getting worse in the year sure um, but more likely actually actions to address you know fundamental weaknesses that they see there right
1: now sure Okay, so coming down to the the, the sector specific side, that does seem to be a, a bit of a a bit more of a, a muscle flexing. Like we want to re, reimpose our our vision of the way companies should behave and act towards each other. How is that manifesting itself, and in what industries do you think this is playing out most interestingly?
0: And probably the internet industries are going to be front and center on this. The kind of changes we're seeing now, you know, the the platforms being held accountable for you know almost everything that takes place on their platforms whether it's the short video whether it's the e-commerce whether it's the tv or film and whether it's you know the ip is legitimate for it to be there whether it's and that's for the for the platform owners for the for the corporates whether you've Fully implemented the requirements of the cybersecurity
1: law. One content regulator per every thousand videos uploaded. Why not, right? Well, There's a jobs program if you if well, you if you ever wanted one.
0: Well, you know, if you if you were any, in any doubt about how many people you were supposed to employ in that department, now you have an answer.
1: Yeah. Um it's funny because it was this very hysterical depressing back and forth wherever there'd be a scandal like Totio or Tencent yeah, or whatever would yeah, it would announce. Yeah. Oh, we're hiring 10,000 new content regulators and 5,000 of them will be party members. So we'll be sh- we'll, we're we're sure that they'll do a really good job when it comes to this sort of thing. And
0: um yeah, it's what frankly, is an enormous challenge for those companies. I mean, and they are being penalized for failures, which yeah. we should also highlight whether it's fines or you know, more significantly whether it's, you know, particular lines of business being temporarily shut down. And there's clearly a willingness by the Chinese government to, to take these actions even if they could be significantly unpopular. Yeah. Managing the internet is to be done in the interests of the government and the party. It's not a popularity contest.
1: Yeah. I mean it's it's um it's interesting because I think You know, just to take uh, games for instance, there's there's competing uh, interests within Chinese society. I'm sure thirteen year olds, if this is their first interaction with the Chinese government saying that they can't play more than an hour of games a day, like you know, maybe that's not setting up uh, super well for them to have a positive view of the party. But on the other hand, the parents, you know, appreciating a helping hand when it comes to them not being able to spend you know thousands and thousands of RMB on on character skins. There are different constituencies both. Within the government, within business, and then with popular society, for most of these decisions, it seems.
0: Yeah, in the, you know, in the physical world, in the education space, I think the you know what happened you know with the uh, the kindergarten industry sure. after the scandal in Beijing last year of restrictions on where you could put your kindergartens, but most most importantly, over time, you know, the restriction that publicly listed companies could not be invested in kindergartens going forward so that many companies that had built up a kindergarten strategy and were planning to IPO uh, and maybe had some secondary education activities in there, but they had to split them in two and work out what to do with a kindergarten business that now had no monetization opportunity
1: yeah I mean it's it's interesting because the the kindergarten scandal was horrible and there were these borderline probably relatively psychotic teachers doing mm-hmm. really bad things to children but yep. on the other hand you know there is a clear psychological benefit to having five-year-olds being in groups playing all the time and there are plenty of studies uh, demonstrating this pretty decisively yeah and and clearly I government's intention is that
0: kindergarten should be widely available, and that as higher proportion of Chinese children as possible get the opportunity to go to kindergartens. But in the spirit of what we were talking about a minute or two ago, they want to make sure those kindergartens not only operate to a high generic standard, but that they operate with a content and a way that's seen to be consistent with the values of of the party and the government yeah. you know even at that early stage in the education system
1: yeah but it's it's not it's not like that there aren't another whole huge industry of private education going on in China yeah, outside no. of the kindergarten space oh, so totally. it's a, I mean
0: it's, it's, it's been a massive industry for for foreign investment uh, over i think there's now well over 1000 international schools just as one category of the private education system operating in China and that it's not that the the private capital or foreign capital isn't welcome. It it absolutely is, and particularly as a stimulus for raising standards overall and, and and challenging the broader sector. Sure. But in order to continue to operate, you know, they have to be working within the red lines and the boundaries that the government is going to set for them in terms of what they teach, how they teach it, and who their teachers are.
1: Sure. So let's turn now to uh, investment. Since you brought it up. Chinese investment levels into the U.S., uh, you're right, have fallen more than 70 percent this year and will likely fall further in 2019, as evidenced by my uh, relatively futile job search over the last few months trying to help (laughs) Chinese firms invest in the West. So uh, I'm curious if this. um, I hope hope
0: the podcast pays well in that case.
1: Oh, no, we're we're, we're ad free here. This This is a this is a this is a passion project. So, um, but any listeners out there, you heard my pitch last week. Let's um, uh, keep them coming. Anyways, I'm curious if you think this uh, change in investment is entirely due to the changing political climate, the the revision of the Cifius laws, or if there are other macro factors at play impacting these Chinese uh, investors' decision making.
0: It's largely driven by the change in the Cifius laws as as the first step in the process. Because as case law under the new Cipia system starts to to work through, becomes very clear that many many categories of investment are just completely off the table. Um, investments that would give access to uh, PII, um, investments that give access, uh, pers- Sorry, investments that give access to personally identifiable information on, on U.S. citizens. Investments that that access technology, you know, are just almost certain to be be turned down, and then you get into a, a self censorship loop that's going on. That companies will say, leadership in Chinese companies will say, it's just not worth the risk of getting courts, uh, getting the negative publicity of being in a CFIUS process, and have it turned down because yeah. you know, the end result is. Uh, and the the sellers in the U.S. are also saying. I don't want to get into a process of a sale, sale negotiation that could run on for an extended period of time and then be turned down because not because of commercial terms, but because the government just says, I don't want you to be able to do it. So, so both sides are saying, no, it's not going to happen. And then that's going to radiate to to other countries of saying, you know, Chinese companies will turn to to other markets and say, you know, can I can I make alternative, find alternative assets to acquire in? Israel or in Europe or other tech hubs. Fewer options, obviously, to do that. And, you know, a fair degree of pressure from the U.S. because, again, CFIUS scope extends beyond the U.S. So to the extent that uh, a Chinese company making an acquisition of a European Union company that has any activity in the U.S. will require CFIUS approval for them to be able to continue to operate that part of their business in the U.S.
1: Sure. And at the end of the day, for almost all of these firms, the U.S. market is going to be a bigger deal than whatever investment may come from the Chinese player.
0: Yeah. So I think you're likely to see a shift for Chinese companies that are looking for technology to much, much earlier stage investments. You know, this is investment outside of the U.S. because in the U.S., even at early stage, it would still potentially need to to go through CFIUS, that partnering with university research departments in other parts of the world, partnering, you know, with the spin-outs of universities. You know, with my UK background, I've seen quite a lot of Chinese companies showing up around Oxford and Cambridge yeah. uh, research parks.
1: Interestingly though, I think it was the news yesterday or two days ago that, that Oxford said it wasn't going to take Huawei money anymore. Um, so even even those sorts of things seem to be uh, you know hemmed in by by politics these days. So coming back to macro for a little bit, you talked at the beginning of this podcast about the specter of layoffs and how companies have to manage them in a way that's relatively different from how how a factory owner or what have you would go about doing this and managing this in other countries. So you write that ensuring manufacturing companies do not implement sudden large-scale layoffs as part of their response to U.S. tariffs should be priority number one. Any company that thinks it can get away with such layoffs should plan on leaving China entirely, as the government reaction will not be mild. Even if layoffs were part of a long-term plan made before tariffs were even thought of, it will be extraordinarily hard to persuade government officials that this is the case. So I'm curious... In what vector does this uh, government disapproval manifest and how exactly can the government turn the screws on you if you decide that you want to reduce your your labor force? Primarily talking about local government actions
0: here. Hmm. Uh, And it can be a whole variety of things ranging from access to utilities that you need, sufficient water, electricity, and the like. It can be Additional environmental inspections, tax audits, inspections, challenges for the expats running the factory, mm. uh, ease of doing business, ease of living, getting around, visa renewal, and those kind of things. Supply chain difficulties, getting products authorized to 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 get through the docks and
1: the like. So uh, the irony here sounds like the stuff you're describing is just going to want people to wash their hands of these factories entirely. Um it does potentially end up creating a
0: vicious cycle. Absolutely. But I
1: think we've all seen those vicious cycles happen um, over time. Um, So two things you highlight as activities the government should be pursuing more aggressively than they are include redistributing fiscal resources to the struggling northeast of China, as well as investing in healthcare. I'm curious why you highlight those two as opposed to all the other things that the government could be doing right now as particularly important in your mind.
0: Well, the Northeast China one is probably more a, a, you know, something I've just been banging on about for a long time, mm. um, you know, having been been going up there to visit companies for, for well over 25 years uh, and see, seeing the transition from, frankly, it being an economic engine of China to a real backwater. Mm. You know, how many of China's top 100 Internet companies are based in Northeast China? Um, not very many, mm. and that you know talent is leaving, that you know while there are quality universities there that are turning out quality graduates, somehow it's not creating the entrepreneurial environment and the, the local government mindset of knowing what it takes to make heavy asset heavy industry successful you know, hasn't really changed sufficiently to, to work out what to make you know, to make entrepreneurial. Asset lights, software, internet startups be successful. And I just think it's it's an incredibly important region in China, and you don't want a major region where the economic disparity to more successful parts of China is just continues to head in the wrong direction in such a significant fashion so so, so
1: what way so why does that matter can you go a level a level a level up on that it's like okay like people are moving to get more opportunities and and maybe other cities have better infrastructure and and even though we have the hukou system people are still voting with their with their feet for where they think governance is is better and and where they can earn more with their talents.
0: the reality is the the people with the highest ability to move, in, in many ways, the people who are going to create the greatest entrepreneurial economic you know, sure. upside. Uh, and so you end up with aging population. You end up with physical infrastructure that's that's declining. You end up with, you know, the heavy loss-making industries continuing to, to prop up employment, but only, you know, through running up their debts even further. That's... It's not, you know, in, in the medium term, I just don't think it's a stable situation yeah. to have that happen. And to have it happen to an entire region just make, makes it. Even more troubling.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess it, the, the the moral argument becomes a lot clearer when you're literally ma- when you're making it a lot harder to move with the Hugo system than basically any other country that has depressed regions. But it's you know straightforward to in, to yeah. get your kids into schools wherever I mean, you move.
0: There is one other economic factor that, that restricts movement, in that many people in these cities um, bought property, invested all their assets into property in those cities, sure. uh, and. Quality of the construction wasn't very high, and you know demand is not very high. So th- they're actually stuck with a non saleable asset mm. at this point. So they can't monetize their apartments to buy the new apartment somewhere else, which is uh, creates an, a, an, an actually very large frictional cost for for moving.
1: Sure. So turning now to another one of your predictions in this piece, a Japan-China grassroots reconciliation. Could you talk a little bit about the factors driving this and how you think it will manifest?
0: Sure. Chinese tourists would be factor number one. The desire to go visit Japan as, as it's become easier uh, to go beyond Tokyo to to visit historic sites uh, across the country, to go to the uh, the country inns and the like. Um, just the the desire to experience that as an adjacent culture and one that you know physically is not very far away um japan flights are
1: surprisingly expensive though i don't i can't find one for under like 450 us dollars i i moved when i moved to china i I thought (laughs) man like i'll just be hanging out in tokyo every weekend but it's it's a little farther than you think anyways sorry
0: (laughs) (laughs) the visitors to japan well you know in the absolute scope of chinese tourism may not be you know the dominant number but it does create a desire and an interest and an awareness in Japanese products
1: totally.
0: um, Japanese particularly Japanese consumer goods everything from from beauty products through to, to food products and the trust in the Japanese brand of being high quality um, even if the actual cost of the the product is relatively low is there and that creates a pull that goes Way beyond the people who've actually been and visited Japan. Sure. They, it radiates out through through social media and the like. At the higher end, you know, there's also the outbound desire of wealthy Chinese to buy property internationally, and Tokyo has gone way up on the, the radar screen recently as being relatively good value for money and want a place with a large stock of property, so that the you know unlike in you know, some other cities around the world, the pushback on Chinese buyers is still relatively low. Then at the, the grassroots level, finally Japan and, and Prime Minister Abe has recognized that they really have a, a challenge in the number of workers. Um the, the you know declining workforce, domestic workforce in Japan is a real issue. They're looking to to
1: bring half a million workers in over the next
0: few years. Which,
1: which, which is a fascinating flip. This is this is just you know this is one of the most racially pure nations in the world and has basically been having that policy for a thousand years now. And yeah. even the the handful of, of yeah. Koreans and yeah. um, and Chinese who made it to who made it in Japan uh, after World War II have been treated really poorly, been uh, socially ostracized, not been able to get appropriate. Services and yeah. whatnot. So for for all of a sudden a right wing um, a right wing prime minister to say you know we're going to let in um, not only Koreans and Chinese but Southeast Asians I mean get out of here right it's a it's a it's a fascinating yeah. fascinating well, well I uh, think recognition you know, of economic reality
0: exactly and, and if you know the current government in Japan's willing to say it's half a million people you should probably say in reality that number. These to be several multiples of that. So that he's just warming people up for sure. the fact that this is going to have to take place. And actually, you know, when you go to Japan and and go to some of the uh, the fast food restaurants in in Tokyo, mm-hmm. um, try talking to the waiter in Chinese. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot. There's actually quite a lot of undocumented Chinese in the, the low end service markets. In, in, in Japan. And, and then returning to the point that we were. Chatting on on investments, yeah, you know, uh, there hasn't been an enormous amount of Chinese investment in in tech in Japan to this point. You know, my friends at Lenovo have made several investments. Uh, whether it started with the IBM PC business and in Japan, they had a very significant operation in Japan back in the two thousand and four five, or more recently, uh, investing in the NEC and the Fujitsu PC businesses. That, you know, I think objectively, if you look at the market share, you know, outcomes have been pretty successful mm. um, uh, transactions and demonstrate that with the right preparations, it's perfectly possible for Chinese companies to make
1: acquisitions in Japan and to run them successfully and add value. So it's interesting how um, in, in Japan, you don't really see this fear of Chinese investment that you've uh, watched developed in the U.S. over the past few years
0: as long as the transaction is 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 a friendly transaction and it's of a relatively modest size in absolute terms business Mm -hmm. going to be fine there clearly was some pushback around chinese companies looking at acquiring major japanese semiconductor companies but that's probably right at the end of the spectrum on
1: sensitivity sure so uh, I want to I want to shout out Richard McGregor's book from late 2017 called Asia's Reckoning basically it's a it's a diplomatic history of the US China and Japan starting in the I think after the death of Mao And um, one of his fascinating points that he talks about in the conclusion is that every American policymaker's greatest fear really should be China and Japan setting aside their differences and realizing that uh, the U.S. isn't all it's cracked up to me, that they can actually be friends. Um, and the lack of America turning into this sort of auxiliary country for Japan, as opposed to, um, you know, a, a strong ally and an important part of Japan's future is really concerning for, for U.S. interests in the region. I'm curious, um, you know, how far you think this grassroots reconciliation could run? You know, I use the word grassroots intentionally because I think it is bottom
0: up and it is relatively modest in, in scale and, and in trying to put down a marker on it right now that you know at the individual tourist and traveler level things are connecting at the i want to buy japanese brand product things are connecting and that after a period where you know japanese companies i think in in general have not had the greatest success either as a using China as a manufacturing base or as or as a marketplace, Mm -hmm. that we could be seeing a bit of a shift, particularly on their attitude towards China as a marketplace going forward. Uh, And as finally, as Chinese, particularly technology companies, but also consumer companies become more sophisticated uh, and more global in scale and scope, that it will be more natural. And I think it will work for Chinese companies to make investments in acquiring divisions or parts of uh, Japanese companies in their sectors
1: so given given all we've talked about over this conversation the the increasing role of the of the government in the industry the the kind of sense of shifting priorities in, in soes as well as growing influence that the central government is having on over the past a uh, handful of years more private um, uh, more private more independent companies how do you think foreign players should think about uh, engaging and interacting with these firms while keeping in mind the trend lines here you
0: know if you' focus Focus is on partnering with selling to buying from private sector companies my counsel would be to even in the context you just described continue very much as you work with them in the past treat them as a fully commercial partner they're mm-hmm. trying to operate in a way that makes money for themselves over time and that will be the you know the dominant decision-making factor for you if other elements come into the conversation do try and understand their context, where it's coming from, uh, uh, but don't don't negotiate against yourself in the sense of anticipate that you have to change your way of, way of working yeah. uh, just because they've got a new board member something like
1: that so uh, so Gordon you've been working um, in and around Chinese uh, soEs and private companies you know since the since the 1990s and I'm curious if you feel like this uh, like this whole world is changing um, you know there's a lot of, of talk of, of, of new Cold war of uh, this you know dripping down into into private sector uh, private sector companies and um, you know how, how do you how do you Feel these changes. What's your emotional response to them? What's your advice to young, uh, young folks with a foreign background and potentially different uh, a different value set from Zhongnanhai, working in and around this uh, this universe?
0: Change is an essential part of the experience of being here in China. Mm. And you know, if you ex- expect stability and consistency and things to be the same three years from now as they were three years ago, you you know. You come with the wrong frame of reference that, uh, you know, always always said, you know, in doing strategy with companies in China, find to create a five-year strategy of, of where you intend to go. But, you know, let's make sure we redo it in 24 months sure. because the, the context will have changed. Uh, and the context can change from people getting wealthier, new sectors being prioritized and the like. But often that change is driven right from the very top in China around the tone, the policy setting and the the sort of the overall context that the very top leadership sets in terms of its attitude towards business uh, and and foreign engagement. And the era when I first came to China of the first big wave of shutdown of state-owned enterprise and the shock that that created in the system, the entering WTO uh, and the clear theme of using foreign engagement in China to stimulate massive change in the domestic economy. The Hu Jintao era, of, you know, a lot more opening up uh, and a lot more foreign capital coming into China. And now for the last six, seven years, a different tone in the leadership, uh, sure. emphasizing much more Chinese independence, Chinese self-sufficiency, it's probably a better word, Chinese leadership uh, in, in many sectors and also in the political realms as well. And that creates you know, a different tone. We talked about the centralization of policymaking uh, and, and oversight of implementation of policy. It creates different incentives around you know, Chinese companies going internationally. What should mm. they be doing and how should they be doing it? It creates potentially different market access. And I think you know, some of that is about Gives and some of it's baguettes mm. um, you know, in sectors where state-owned manufacturers still dominate, uh, some of the heavy industrial, I think it's harder, clearly harder. Some of the opening up in pharmaceuticals, taking the example, you know, has actually been remarkable mm. over the last t- two years of the volume of foreign drugs that are now available for the first time to to Chinese doctors, to Chinese patients. Has the potential to make a really big difference in healthcare sure. in, in China. Uh, the financial service opening up, people are definitely getting licenses. People are taking advantage of those. That's a positive. But on the ba- on the balance of, of overall of gives and gets, while well, there's a few sectors where there's been really been significant change and increased international opportunity, on balance you're feeling more squeezed these sure. days as a foreign foreign company operating in China.
1: Yeah. Um, so another trend I want to have your sage wisdom on is the kind of upgrade in just the the general management quality of these uh, Chinese firms. So there's been there's been some recent uh, commentary and criticism around uh, uh, foreign consultants working outside of the U.S. But one of the the responses written by Tyler Cowen has has argued that quote one of the Biggest, most positive, and most neglected global trends over the past 30 years has been the spread of managerial and technocratic expertise to what used to be called third world governments. And he goes on to say, when I meet entrepreneurs in poorer parts of the world, I'm often struck by the fact that they are highly intelligent and conscientious, but they don't always understand all the cultural codes of good management. Advice that may appear stupid or trivial to more experienced observers may actually help build new cultures of business excellence and economic growth. So uh, reflect on that, if you might. Yeah, I think one of the the things that
0: has impressed me the most over the years uh, working with Chinese business leaders is the pace at which they change and develop. Um, And I think it partly comes back to their context is continuous change. Yeah. Um, And so there's an expectation that the way I run the business or what the market opportunity is five years from now, or two years from now, it's going to be very different. You know, in the early days as an advisor manifested, you know, there was always a high level of interest in how did international companies run themselves yeah. from from Chinese business leaders and from Chinese government officials too, that, you know, w- would open a lot of doors just to say, to explain this is how Procter & Gamble, you know, runs itself. This is how GE runs itself in, in those days. That-
1: yeah, there's, there's an interesting, uh, in a recent China Econ Talk newsletter, which you should also go subscribe to, I highlighted this piece looking at the evolution of Huawei. Yeah. And basically, they had this big decision in the in the mid-1990s uh, yeah. where they were sort of at a crossroads, and the CEO decided that we're going to pay IBM consultants an exorbitant amount of money. I think it was like $600 an hour mm-hmm. um, to, to go hang out in China. And just teach us how to run a business properly. And so this um, this interest I- and and this openness to uh, to Western management and Western ideas is, is something that's um, you know has gone back a long time. And yeah. and I think you could argue is is a really important factor in um, a lot of this growth that's happened. And and then in more recent eras, you've seen the growth in sort of
0: really you know, functional excellence in sure. companies, marketing, you know, supply chain and the likes companies got bigger and bigger. And then in the you know, really in the last five or six years, you've seen world class excellence and in innovation, you know, particularly in terms of how they can use data to uh, innovate their business model in ways that either isn't possible or that international companies in other countries just haven't got around to doing yet. Sure. Um, and I I I do think to, to maybe I'm repeating, but it's the you know, being in a context of where, you know, GDP doubles every six or seven years, if you're being successful in your sector, you may be growing 40, 50% a year. It does give an enormous confidence to management that they're, that, you know, they're doing things the right way <laughs> at that point in time. Uh, but, um, and it does lead, create the basis for saying, we need to change things going forward. But to, to comment, come back to what, your 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 quote from Tyler um, I think part of what the the challenge is if you're a really really successful entrepreneur um, you're not really on the lookout for advice on problems that you haven't run into yet mm. you know and so it's only when you run into that culture that cultural problem of you know actually selling in this third country isn't like selling in wherever your home country is Uh, For us, China, how do I do it differently? Mm. Um, You know, uh, there's a tendency to assume that I know and then fail and then ask the question rather than to assume things will be different. Ask the question and then adjust.
1: Do you think that's something uh, inherent to to Chinese business culture or just um, inherent to successful businessmen who are getting rich really fast? My sample set is skewed but I
0: would tend to believe that it's a characteristic of successful businessmen and women around the world.
1: Could, could you apply this not just to the business context? I, I understand you guys also uh, occasionally do do government and SOE projects. How do you think that, uh, that mindset and that uh, has, has changed over the years?
0: Some of the most impressive, quote-unquote, business leaders that I've met in China over time have actually been running cities. Mm. That with the meritocratic system that you have... In China, to to end up running a major city, you're a pretty talented guy. Mm. You have very clear KPIs that you're given, many of which are economic in nature create X thousand new jobs in this sector, create this amount of tax in this new sector. And the openness to, particularly when it's a new industry, of what does it take to attract world leading companies? What does it take to create an ecosystem? in Shanghai for the automotive sector or, you know, in Hainan for the tourism sector. How, how do I make that work? You know, you, you, you feel like the, the person across the table really has a very sharp business mind. Leaders of state-owned enterprises, again, have a lot of respect for because in many ways they, they must feel they've been pulled left and right over time Mm. that there was a period when you know they were clearly meant uh, earlier period when they were clearly meant to implement business according to the instructions they were given by the ministry it was a period when after the early IPOs where they were given instructions that they were meant to operate as private sector companies and compete with each other and then they were pulled back from that and then they would make these kind of directed international investments and pulled back from that Um, and, and many of those leaders are, in, are actually in position for, for the five-year cycle, yeah. know, which actually isn't long enough, it depends on the sector, but in the heavy industry sectors to really make a difference sure. you know, and to implement
1: With super long something you know, capital like, horizons. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
0: if you're, if you're running a car company, the, 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 the cycle of deciding to make a model, designing the model, putting it into the markets, creating commercial success – is longer than your expected tenure in the role. So you're gonna focus on shorter term actions.
1: Sure. I mean the 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 city mayors also, I mean, there's yeah. that unbelievably good uh documentary, the the Chinese mayor, which I recommend everyone to check out on on Netflix. And and do you think that the term limit, you know, rotational nature of all of these jobs impacts impacts have you seen it impact that side as well?
0: Yeah, I mean it definitely creates trade-offs because you know. When you're there for a five-year cycle, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but imposing five-year limits gets people to think in five-year cycles. And thinking about after year three, what my next role is going to be, am I ticking all the boxes this year to get things done? So there's going to be a tendency to be less bold, less ambitious uh, once you get to year three, four, five of someone's tenure. Uh, and certainly, why should I make a big investment in a project that the next guy in is going to get the credit for from the flag, out op- you know, from cutting the ribbon when it opens?
1: Sure. You know, we've talked a lot about trends that, you know, as as someone with a relatively like neoliberal, more free market outlook. Uh, seem to be seem to be concerning, as well as a, a broader uh, macroeconomic environment, which doesn't seem particularly hot right now. What would what would your your takeaway message be here for these um uh, uh, for this conversation? I think private sector entrepreneurs
0: play an indispensable role in the Chinese economy today. Whether it's small, mid sized entrepreneurs manufacturing export goods, you know, at two percent margin on the east coast whether it's the internet giants that are you know world leading and innovating in, in what they do, whether it's the biotech companies and the like. And for China to continue to, as we talked about, to continue to change, you know, continue to create wealth that benefits the vast majority of people in in society, needs to be a constructive coexistence between the private sector and state owned enterprises and you know, that, that balance of between the two has clearly shifted around backwards and forwards mm. over, over time. And I think at the moment, private entrepreneurs are feeling under more pressure than I've noticed them feeling in the past. And many more of them less certain that there's going to be opportunities for them in China in the future. Mm. And if we're not careful, we'll end up with a bit of a vicious cycle for people deciding not to make investments at the margin.
1: Gordon Orr, thanks for coming on China Econ Talk. Very welcome. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason McRonald and Kaiser Guo, and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from China. For other great shows on China, check out the Sin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course the Seneca podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week.
0: Yeah, look,
1: 不太心有嗎